ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا اما بعد my dear brothers and sisters assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh who wants to hear a jinn story anyone want to hear a jinn story tonight you have a couple of people that want to hear a jinn story? Okay, so this is a, a, a very uh, interesting situation. And this goes back to the principle of truly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides whom He wills. You know, this is something as Muslims, we have to believe. That guidance is not in our hands, it is purely and, and, and only in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. So this goes back to uh, Halloween night, where there is this individual who has gone out partying like crazy, and he gets drunk and he gets so drunk that he's unable to drive home so what he ends up doing is he ends up calling his boss to, to take him home and he calls his boss to take him home and while they're in the car this boss of his who is a Muslim the boss who is a Muslim he puts on Quran and when he puts the Quran on this individual that was drunk he just completely flips out I mean, goes absolutely bonkers. Starts hitting his head against the window, starts banging his head, and just completely flipping out. He turns off the Quran, and then he goes back to normal as if nothing happened. This individual was staying at a hotel with some of his friends, and they take him to the hotel. And subhanAllah, it was so interesting, like the group of people that was there, you had the boss that was Muslim, then this drunk guy, then you had another friend who was like the son of like a, a Christian pastor, and then you had like a whole bunch of fusak, you know, people who were just like into like listening music. And then when they saw what, was, what happened in the car, they're like, let's start playing around with this guy. So one, the, 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 the son of the Christian pastor, he starts reciting the gospel, nothing's happening to the guy, you know, the, the, the fusak, they start playing their music, nothing's happening to this guy. And then all of a sudden they start playing Quran and all of a sudden the, the guy starts flipping out again, starts going crazy. Till eventually they play the Quran for a couple of hours and the scenario, you know, it stops like that. Morning time comes, the guy's like, what happened to me last night? You know, I, I just remember hearing some voices, uh, but I don't remember what happened. And they're like, you know what? Why don't we show you what happened? Because they were recording everything and they showed it to him. And he couldn't believe what was happening. So this led him to, you know, ask more questions and find out more about Islam, find out more about the Quran. And Alhamdulillah, on Friday, the, the person who was drunk and was possessed by a jinn, he actually took his shahada, Alhamdulillah. Now, hold on. <laughs> Alhamdulillah, it's fantastic news, but it's not the end of the story. So now, this person accepts Islam and um, they're trying to learn, you know, what to do, how to pray, how to make wudu, how to make ghusl, so on and so forth. And they start noticing that every night they're having dreams. And it's the same dream every night. Now here's like one of the rules of dream interpretation. If you're having a dream that reoccurs, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to teach you a lesson through that dream. That's the general rule of it. And in this dream what's happening is, he's brushing his teeth and he's looking in the mirror while he's in the bathroom. Till all of a sudden, his reflection in the mirror stops brushing his teeth even though he's brushing his teeth. The reflection, it, its eyes turn red, and then both the, the reflection and him, they look up and they realize that there's no roof or ceiling in the bathroom. And then all of a sudden they start floating. And they start floating up, 
and he describes it as if there's a volcano that has just erupted and there's fire everywhere and you see people being punished, you see people being burnt alive, you see people screaming, people being tortured and this is, you know, what he's seeing and in terms of what he's hearing, he keeps hearing this statement in Arabic but he doesn't know what it means, he doesn't know what it means and eventually he keeps floating and floating till he gets very very close to the source of the fire and he starts feeling hot and that's when he wakes up when it's in a, in a perspiring state and this happens for like five nights in a row till this is like last night you know he started paying more attention to his dream and he started realizing that in his dream there was something written in Arabic on the wall and since he had been you know, hearing this dream so often, he started learning some of the words of it. And then today, he was attending a, a class live uh, with Sheikh Abu Isa, Logical Progression. Uh, and this was happening in Edmonton. And while the class is going on, he starts seeing the Arabic uh, writing all over the place. He's seeing it on the walls, seeing it on the ceiling, just seeing it in the air sometimes. And after the class was over, he speaks to Sheikh Abu Isa and he's like, look, you know, this is what's happening and, you know, I, I don't know what to, what to do or what this means. So Sheikh Abu Isa is like, look, do you remember what the sounds you were hearing? Where's, what does it sound like? And in transliteration, he wrote it down, but the transliteration, to be honest with you, didn't make sense. And then he's like, do you remember any of the symbols that, are, that you saw? And he's like, I can see them right now. They're still there. So he starts writing it down while Abu Isa is there in Arabic for a person that has never been exposed to Arabic in his life. And then um, I don't remember how the, uh, the Arabic started off, but the ending, it ends off uh, in the, the, the fire of, of hell. And then, you know, as I was speaking to Abu Isa, I'm like, what was the first part? And he's like, the first part, it was saying that your soul belongs to us in the fire of hell. And that's what his dream has been for the last couple of nights. The jinn are basically saying that, look, we're taking your, your soul to the hellfire. You know, get ready for it. Now, how scary of a story is that, subhanAllah? <laughs> so this is a real story that's actually going on currently. And, um, you know, it's just a, such a reminder for myself. And that's why I'm sharing it with you. It's such a reminder in terms of the importance of making our adhkar in the morning and the evening. And in seeking refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from shaitan and making sure that our houses have Surah Al-Baqarah played in it and they have Qur'an played in it and that our houses are protected. That we try to stay in a state of Tahara at all times as possible, right? These are the ways that we protect ourselves from Shaitan. And this is like, you know, a challenge that the brother is going through, but it could have happened to, to any of us. So the positive aspect of it, Alhamdulillah, you look at one of the miraculous ways Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides people. And on the other hand, it shows you that how when the person accepts Islam, they're tested right away. And part of your submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that you will be tested. So I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants us and that brother steadfastness in our tests. Ameen. With that having been said, let us go back to our topic of discussion. So we're continuing with hadith number 34. Uh, on Friday, we took the fiqh of the hadith, the major chunk of the, of the discussion of when should a person enjoin good and forbid evil? Do you need to begin with your hand or not? Can you just go with your tongue? Um, you know, so on and so forth. And just to summarize some of those points, we said that the main goal behind um, 
enjoining good and forbidding evil is the eradication of the evil itself. It doesn't matter, you know, which way you actually do it in terms of you start with your tongue or with your hand. The main goal is the eradication of the evil. And it's not too important which one that you start off with. The second thing we said is that a person needs to be conscious and knowledgeable of the levels of evil. And any time there's an evil that is greater than the evil that is being eradicated, then evil should not be er uh, attempted to be eradicated at that time. And then we took eight different scenarios in terms of what should you uh, in, uh, eradicate evil at that time or not, and then we concluded. So now we're going to continue on with the last portion of the hadith where the Messenger of Allah says, and if he's not able to do so, then he must change it with his heart. Then he must change it with his heart. And at that time, he mentioned the famous statement of Abdullah bin Mas'ud anhu. He said, soon those who live amongst you will see evil and he will not be able to do anything other than have Allah knows that he hates it. He will not be able to do anything other than let Allah know that he hates it. Now, what we want to discuss over here is what did the Messenger of Allah mean by changing it with your heart, by changing it with your heart. And here the interpreters of the hadith, they said when Allah's Messenger وسلم, said he should change it with his heart, this means that in his heart he is telling himself that if I had the capability to change it with my hand or with my tongue, I would have done so. But the fact that I don't have the ability to do this, then at the very least, I'm going to remain with this feeling that if I was able to do so, then I would have done so. If I was able to do so, then I would have done so. Now, this leads us to another aspect of it, is that how does one keep that feeling alive in the heart? That once someone is exposed to so much evil, and evil on a constant basis, we talked about how an individual can become desensitized to that evil, right? So an individual that becomes desensitized to that evil, he's not going to want to change that evil anymore. And I believe this is like one of the major trials of our times, that we're exposed to so much evil, that we no longer have that will and desire to change it anymore. So how does a person go about from protecting their heart from being desensitized? The first step is that a person actually has to make an effort. You know, one of the whispers that shaitan comes with, he's like, you see so much evil in your life that there's no point in trying to stop the small, in trying to, you know, avoid the small evils. So you see a kissing scene on TV, there's no point, you know, turning your head away at that time because you see so much greater evil. You know, there's something, there's a, a woman walking on the street that isn't dressed appropriately. You know, what's the big deal if you look at her or not? Because you, you're exposed to so much other evil. You see people drinking and gambling and doing all sorts of other things. You know, what's the big deal? You're already exposed to other amounts of evil. So one actually has to make that effort to, to, to change, right? So even the smallest things, you tell yourself, you warn yourself that you know what? I have to make that effort to turn my head away and to look away. And that is the only way the heart will remain sensitive. Whereas if you constantly expose yourself without making that effort, then your heart is doomed at that time. Then your heart is doomed at, time, at that time. And it will only stay away by making that effort. Number two, by making conscious decisions as to where you go and where you stay. Making conscious decisions as to where you go and where you stay. So I'll give you an example. You know, it's in the middle of the summer, Calgary Stampede is going on, and you're with the guys, and you're like, we can go and eat in downtown, or we can go and eat, you know, in like the Northwest, right? And you think to yourself, you know what? All the good restaurants are in downtown. Let's, uh, let's all go to downtown at that time. Then you come to downtown during the Calgary Stampede time, and what do you see? 
people are partying, they've turned into zombies, they're like laying on the streets, there's like uh, vomit everywhere, people are, you know, walking as if they don't know what they're doing, you know, everyone's stumbling, and that's what you're being exposed to, right? So you, we made a conscious decision at that time, that's what we're going to expose ourselves to. So we need to think ahead a couple of steps that the situation that I'm going to, what am I going to be exposing myself to? And if you avoid those circumstances and situations for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you're actually rewarded for that. You're actually rewarded for that. And that's something as a group of Muslims, when you get together, you need to be uh, you know, conscious, of, the, uh, conscious uh, of that fact. That the situations that you expose yourselves to and the places that you go, they will have an impact on you. you will, they will have an impact on you. Number three, the people that you actually hang around with. The people that you actually hang around with. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of those situations, but you're like with an individual who you think is good, but then all of a sudden like a hot girl is walking by and he's like, hey, check her out. And you're like, you know, what type of friend are you at that time, right? So you have to be very conscious of, you know, the people that you're hanging around with, that you want to tell someone, you want the type of friend that if they see you looking at something haram, they'll tell you like, look, lower your gaze, you shouldn't be looking at that. Not the type of person that, that is like, you know what, look at that haram, so you can get that one minute or one second of pleasure for, you know, an internal amount of pain and torment after. Right? So it's very, very uh, important that we choose the type of people that we hang around with and people that bring about shyness and modesty. And this is something that you know, we've discussed in the previous hadith, but I cannot emphasize enough you know, how many lessons can be drawn from the hadith of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, where the bottom part of his uh, thigh is exposed. And when Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu came in, he didn't move. When Umar radiallahu anhu came in, he didn't move. But when Uthman radiallahu anhu came in, that's when the Prophet sallallahu fixed himself and made sure that the bottom part of his, of his thigh was covered. And then Aisha radiallahu anha, she asked him, O Messenger of Allah, you know, you didn't do this when my father came in and when Umar came in, but when Uthman came in, you did this. And the Prophet sallallahu he says something very, very profound at that time. He says, should I not be shy of someone whom the angels are shy of? Meaning that people of shyness and modesty, they actually bring that habit with them and they instill it in you while they are present amongst you. And these are the type of people that you want to surround yourselves with. These are the type of people that you want to surround yourselves with. Number four, making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always protects you from seeing evil. Making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He protects you from seeing evil. And this is a huge thing, that when you notice the hadith of where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes his awliya, he mentions in that hadith that they come closer through the nafil prayers, till what happens? Till they become, till Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala becomes the sight what they see, the hearing with which he hears. And the scholars interpreted that hadith to mean that when a person reaches that level of righteousness, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will protect the individual from the, the evil that he could be exposed to, through seeing and through hearing. So making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He protects us from those situations. Making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He protects us from those situations. A next point we want to discuss is one of the most dangerous aspects of a dead heart is the fact that the heart will actually become pleased with the evil or wish for that evil. That the heart will become pleased with that evil or wish for that evil. And this happens a lot of the times where it's just a natural reaction where you see some sort of haram going on but you see that they're having an amazing time, they're having like a, a blast of a time whether it be in real life or in TV and then your heart starts to say, you know what, why aren't you having that type of fun? Why aren't you having that type of fun? Where your heart starts to wish for it, right? 
Now this is an indication of a dead heart. This is an indication of a, sorry, not a dead heart, of a dying heart. It's not completely dead. It's the, the, the sign of a dying heart. And this is something that, again, it goes back to, if your heart is longing for evil and it's pleased with evil, then there's something seriously wrong, right? That if a colleague of yours is drinking alcohol on the table and you don't feel anything at your heart at that time, or in fact, your heart even starts to wish that, you know, why are you just drinking Diet Coke today? You know, why aren't you having something else, something more exotic? There's something wrong at that time and that situation needs to be reassessed and you need to pull yourself out from that situation and try to fix it. You need to pull yourself out from that situation and try to fix it. Now, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he goes on to say, and that is the slightest of faith. That is the lowest amount of faith. What do we understand from this statement? If we were to take this statement literally, it means that the highest of faith is if a person wants to change something with their hand. The second level of faith is that if you don't change it with your hand, at least you speak about it. And then the third level of faith is that you should hate it with your heart, and then that is the lowest of faith. This is a literal interpretation that some of the scholars have presented, but this interpretation is actually incorrect. This interpretation is actually incorrect. Who can tell me why? Why is this interpretation incorrect? Go ahead. Because there, is, there may be some situations which uh, demand you not to go through the process ABC. Uh, force you to just speak and pray the uh, issue. Fantastic, good. So there are certain situations where you need to assess what is going to be more beneficial for you, right? Certain situations is more beneficial for you to speak than to use your hand, right? Certain situations is better just for you to remain quiet and hate it in your heart than try to do any of the other two, right? So this is not, you know, uh, a blueprint in terms of how evil should be eradicated. So that's point number one. Who can give me a second point over here? Depending on, de depends on what your position is. Like, if you're able to do, stop something physically, then you have to do it physically. And then if you're not in the position of doing it physically, then you wouldn't have to go about it that way. See, but the, 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 that's something that, that, that I would disagree with. Just because you're able to do something physically, does it mean you have to do it physically? No, if you're like, according to your position, like for example, law enforcement, right? Like if you're police, then you're able to take certain steps that a normal right. civilian cannot. Of course. So like a normal civilian shouldn't go beat someone up, I think. I agree with you 110%. Yeah, a normal civilian should not beat up other people. So they would go about the other two ways, right? Like verbal and... So what, how does that affect one's faith though? That's what I'm saying. So does that mean that the police officer naturally has more Iman than the person who's just speaking out against it? No. No, not at all. So how do we understand this last statement though? No idea? But good attempt though. That was a very impressive attempt. Anyone else want to give it a shot? How do we understand this last statement? And that is the weakest of faith. What is the Messenger of Allah وسلم, referring to? Ayub, go ahead. So what is the general situation? Who is general situation? Of the people. Good, very good. So there was a famous scholar of the past uh, by the name of Mullah Ali Al-Qari. He's a famous scholar of hadith from the Hanafi Madhab. And that was actually his interpretation. That when the Messenger of Allah وسلم, says, that is the weakest of faith, it means when the people as a general group have reached that level that they're only hating it with their hearts and they're not doing anything about it with their tongues or with their hands, they know that is a time when that is the weakest of faith. 
Now, when you understand that statement, what does that mean about a people that don't even hate it with their hearts anymore? That there's no faith left in that community anymore. There's no faith left in that community. You have something else to add? Yeah. Go ahead. It could also be that if someone is able to change them with his hand, but he doesn't do so even when he's able, he only hates it with his heart, mm -hmm. and that's what they say. Fantastic. So now speaking at an individual level where a person does have the capability to change it and he knows that the most effective way to change that evil is with his hand but he passes up on that opportunity and he goes straight to level 2 or level 3 even though um, level 1 changing it with the hand would be more effective. So in that situation where, level, where you know for a fact or, or probable doubt that way number one is more effective and you have the ability to do so, yet you don't choose it, then that is a weakness in faith at that time. That is a weakness in faith at that time. And this goes back to our point uh, from last week when we were talking about who are the two main people that are referred to in terms of authority in Islam. They are the rulers and the scholars. That the scholars, all, the scholars and the rulers always have the greatest amount of accountability due to them having the greatest amount of authority. And based upon that, if the scholars and the rulers are being very passive in their attempts to eradicating evil, while they have the ability to do more than that, then that is a sign of weakness in their faith. That is a sign of weakness in their faith. Now I want to share with you um, a statement from Muhammad al-Sindi. Muhammad al-Sindi is one of the famous scholars of hadith. He's written a, a commentary on the Sunan of Ibn Majah and the Sunan of An-Nasa'i. And I want to share with you what he says uh, about the relationship between evil and eradicating evil. He says, no one is going to reject munkar in the way it should be rejected, except for the one who knows Allah in the proper way, knows his rights, and loves him from the depths of his heart. He is also only the one who sees that everything is in Allah's hand, and no one other than Allah is of any concern to him. This is the person who, if he sees his beloved disobeyed or his ruling contradicted, will stand out of jealousy and honor for the sake of Allah and to get closer to him. He will rebuke the evildoer no matter who he may be and will strive his utmost to remove that evil. No one who truly and sincerely loves Allah will not take disobedience to his beloved lightly and he will not have the patience to witness it. And furthermore, he will not love those people who commit such evil. That stance is not achieved except by those people who love Allah and whom he loves and who do not fear for the sake of Allah the reproach of anyone. Amongst those people are Umar ibn al-Khattab. During our time, the jealousy or rage for the sake of Allah has been lost from the hearts of the servants. The evil has become accepted and what is good has become rejected. The one who cries should cry over that disaster. The one that cries should cry over that disaster. Now, Shaykh Muhammad al-Sindi rahimahullah, he's bringing about a very important concept that isn't talked about enough, which is ghira for the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala where you know how a man feels protective over his women folk, whether it be his daughter, whether it be his wife, whether it be his mother, that if anyone was to even look at them the wrong way, then something in his heart transpires where he, become, where he has a state of rage. Now what he does with it, that's a completely separate point. But what we're talking about is that rage that he feels due to being protective over his women folk. 
Now this is a similar, uh, I guess, comparison that the Sharia gives to a man over his woman folk, to mankind over the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Where mankind needs to have this protective jealousy over the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Where when someone is doing evil, even though you may have a personal relationship with them, your love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is greater than that personal relationship. You seeing someone disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is greater in your sight than keeping ties with that person, than keeping ties with that person. Now this needs to be understood in this proper context, meaning that just because someone does evil, it doesn't mean that you cut off ties with them and you know, say that they're excommunicated from the community and you know, they're destined for the hellfire. That's not what's being said. What's being said is that feeling that is meant to transpire in the hearts. That is the ghira for the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is one of the key characteristics that was found in the likes of Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu. To such a degree that, you know, if shaitan saw him, he's walking in the other direction. He doesn't want to meet someone like Umar ibn Khattab because he knows that anything that he tries to inspire the people with, Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu will be one of the first people to stop it. So that was the first element, the ghira for the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number two is what the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala truly means. That you love what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves and you hate what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hates. Whereas when you hear about the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in our times, it's as if it's some spiritual trance, right? Where you don't see anything, you don't hear anything, and you're just lost, you know, in the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is stupidity and foolishness. It is not love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that when there's good going on, your heart naturally wants to increase that good by partaking in it. And when there's evil going about, your heart naturally feels disturbed that how can I let this evil take place when I know that my beloved Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is being disobeyed in such a gathering. So I thought that was a, a very important quote to share with you. Now we move on to one of the last portions for tonight, which is what are the negative results of not eradicating evil? What are the negative results of not eradicating evil? Number one, is that those people that do not eradicate evil while they have the ability to do so, they earn the curses of the prophets. They earn the curses of the prophets. In Surah Al-Ma'idah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, those among the tribe of uh, Israel who disbelieved were cursed by the tongue of David and Jesus the son of Mary. That was because they disobeyed and were transgressing beyond bounds. They used to not forbid one another from wrong which they committed. Violent indeed was what they used to do. So one of the reasons why Bani Israel was cursed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the surah by the prophets, was the fact that they used to see each other doing evil, but they wouldn't stop one another from doing that evil. And this is a big reminder for ourselves that you know, how many times do we see our family members doing something wrong, our close friends doing something wrong, but because of that relationship that we have with them, we're very hesitant, we're very shy, we're very timid to do anything about it. Whereas the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should take precedence. And even if you're unable to change it with your hand in that time, then at the very least speak out about it, right? Speak out about it. That's the absolute minimum that you can do. And this is a point that was mentioned last week. One of the case scenarios that we took is that what if you know that if you were to try to attempt to eradicate evil with your tongue, but you would be verbally abused at that time, should you still eradicate evil? And we said 100% yes at that time. Because the Sharia does not recognize verbal abuse as a form of harm that, you know, that harms you, that should prevent you from eradicating evil. So even if people are going to verbally abuse you, it shouldn't prevent you from eradicating that evil with your tongue.
Number two is that the one that does not eradicate evil will be exposed to trials, will be exposed to trials. In Surah Al-Anfal, verse number 25, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And fear the affliction and trial, which affects not in particular those of you who do wrong, and know that Allah is severe in punishment. So this verse, let me repeat it. And fear not the affliction and trial, which affects not in particular only those of you who do wrong. So meaning that this trial is not just going to affect those people that are going to do wrong, but it's going to affect more people than that. The Sahaba, uh, you know, some of the Sahaba from them were Ibn Abbas, said that this is referring to those people that saw evil, but didn't bother changing it. This is referring to those people that saw evil, but didn't bother changing it. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent them a trial. Number three, in Surah Al-Imran, verses 104 and uh, 105, 104 and 105. Let there arise out of you a party of people inviting to all, to all that is good, enforcing what is right and eradicating what is evil. And it is they who that are successful. And be not as those who divided and differed amongst themselves after clear proofs had come to them. Shaykh Ibn Uthameen, when he commented on this verse, he said, uh, not eradicating evil will have two punishments to it. Number one is that person will never be successful, and that's like the letter of this ayah, right? He, he says, those who enjoy good and forbid evil, they will be successful. Then the exact opposite, those that don't do so, they will be failures, right? But he brings a very valid point about the continuation of the verse. And he says, do not be of those people that differed and created fractions amongst themselves. He said that one of the punishments of not eradicating evil is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will spread disunity amongst that people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will spread disunity amongst that people. The hadith of the Prophet sallallahu this is reported in the Sunan of Abu Dawud. And this is a, a very important hadith as well. Where the Messenger of Allah sallallahu he says, The similitude of the one who fulfills Allah's command by eradicating evil, and the one who falls into what Allah forbids, is like a people who drew lots for places on a boat. Some of them got the upper level of the boat, while others were on the lower level. Whenever the people on the lower level wanted water, they had to go to the people on the upper level. Therefore they said, if we were to make a hole in our portion, we would not have to bother the people above us to get water. If they, the, if they, the people on the upper level, leave them to what they want to do, all of them would be destroyed. If instead they take them by their hand and stop them from what they plan on doing, they will be saved and they will save all of them. They will be saved and they will save all of them. Now SubhanAllah, that's such a powerful example. That you have a boat that has two levels of people on it. People on the top, people at the bottom. People on the bottom, they constantly have to go to the people on the top to ask for water. And you know, at a certain level, you start to feel, why do I keep bothering the people on top? Where you get so overwhelmed by your own problem, that you start losing focus of the greater picture. You start losing focus of the greater picture. So what do these people at the bottom say? They're like, let us put a hole in the bottom of the ship so that we can get this water and we won't have to ask the people you know, on top. But they fail to realize what's gonna happen if they put a hole in the ship. Everyone is going to drown. Now if the people on the top take the approach and they say, you know what, that's their problem. We don't have anything to do with them. They're not our people. They're not on the other level. Let them do what they want to do. What ends up happening in that situation? Both the upper level and the bottom level start drowning. What does this teach us? We as an ummah are not just responsible for our own selves. 
but we are responsible for our brothers, for our sisters, for our communities. And if we see our brothers, sisters, communities trying to drown themselves, we have a responsibility. Because when they're drowning, we're drowning as well. And if we help save them, this will help save us as well. And this is like the proper understanding of the hadith of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, that the brother is the mirror of his brother. That if he sees something you know, in, him, in his brother that is wrong, it's a part of him that's wrong as well and he needs to help fix it. So we have a communal obligation to fix those things. We have a communal obligation to fix those things. Another hadith narrated in the Sunan of Abu Dawud. There is no people amongst which evil is committed and they have the ability to change that, but they do not change it except that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will soon afflict them with a punishment that will affect all of them. So here the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not just come to those people that are committing the evil, but also those people that remain silent. Also those people that remained silent. And I'll share one last hadith with you and then uh, that's pretty much the conclusion. Actually there's one section left and then it's the conclusion. The last hadith I'll share with you is certainly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ask the servant on the day of resurrection. He will uh, even ask him, what kept you from repelling an evil when you saw it? When Allah prompts the slave to understand his argument, he says, O oh Lord, I put my hope in you that your forgiveness and I had a fear of the people. And I had a fear of the people. And I believe this is what eventually comes down to, is that we delude in ourselves into thinking that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all merciful and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will pardon people. Right? That statement is absolutely true. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can forgive whoever he wills. But why do we hold that, that, that feeling in our hearts? This is what the hadith puts into perspective. That we have a fear of a people at the end of the day. And I believe this afflicts all of us, right? That we always have this fear of the people. Whereas the true fear should be the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now I want you to think about this for a second. What is the difference between the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the fear of the people. There are many, many differences. But one of the key differences that is always mentioned by the scholars is that fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it enables a person. Whereas fear of, Allah, fear of the people, it paralyzes a person. Fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is supposed to give you the ability to do more, right? That's what the fear, that is what is unique about the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It doesn't paralyze you. The fear of Allah, it enables you to do more because you are afraid of His punishment, right? Whereas fear of the people, there's nothing to actually be afraid of and that is why it actually paralyzes you. It prevents you from taking action. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us time and time in the Quran again, that don't be afraid of the people, but be afraid of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because at the end of the day, it is only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that can truly benefit you or cause harm. It is only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that can truly benefit you or cause harm harm. Now let's just cover this last portion, then I'll open up the floor for questions. Ordering good and eradicating evil is one of the more, most important aspects of brotherhood in Islam. Ordering good and eradicating evil is one of the most important aspects of brotherhood in Islam. And this is based upon the verse in Surah At-Tawbah, verse number 71. Surah At-Tawbah, verse number 71. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, the, believing men, the believers, men and women, are helpers and supporters of one another. They order what is good and forbid what is evil. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the very first description that He gives the believers is that they are helpers and supporters of one another, right? And then the second description He gives is that collectively they enjoin what is good and they forbid what is evil. This is their second description that is given. 
Now this puts things into perspective over here that a lot of the times when we see one of our own brothers doing something wrong, in the name of retaining brotherhood, we actually will not say anything or prevent them from doing evil, right? In the name of brotherhood, we will choose to remain silent. Whereas here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us in this verse that if you truly were brothers, then you would aid your brother against his own self. You would aid your brother against his own self. And you would enjoin good and forbid evil amongst yourselves. And this is why the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he says, help your brother, aid your brother, whether he is being oppressed or he is the oppressor. Whether he's being oppressed or he's being the oppressor. So they said, O oh, Messenger of Allah وسلم, we understand that if he is being oppressed, we understand how to help him. But how do we help someone when he is the oppressor? And the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he said at that time, by advising them by what they're doing is wrong. By advising them about what they're doing is wrong. So this is the responsibility that we have. And shaitan again, he will come to delude us into thinking that in the name of brotherhood, remain quiet. You know, don't say anything. Now we discussed last week in terms of the etiquettes of giving da'wah and you know, eradicating that evil with your tongue, that be gentle, be wise, gentleness is the, the, is the, the, the source. There are very few limited cases where harshness is justified. We talked about making sure that the evil is actually there. We, made sure, we said make sure it's not just a one-time mistake, but sometimes that it is prevalent and so on and so forth. And this shows us over here that this is part of our responsibility that we encourage one another with good in the best of manners. And I'll leave you with the statement of Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah. He says, the brother that advises his brother in private, then he has truly helped him and has been sincere. He has truly helped him and been sincere. But the one that advise him, advises him in public, he has just shamed him and made the situation worse. He has just shamed him and made the situation worse. So if you truly do care about your brothers and sisters, and this is something we all should, then take the opportunity and ability to advise them in private, with gentleness, with you know, the best of manners, at a time which is appropriate, right? Take the opportunity to do so, because this is part of you know, our role of brotherhood in this religion. This is part of enjoying good and forbidding evil. And as we learned today from that verse, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will test a people with disunity, once, he, once they stop enjoying good and forbidding evil amongst themselves. And I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses us with true brotherhood and makes us of those that enjoin good and forbid evil and makes us of those that allow us to live up to this hadith. Wallahu ta'ala alam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. I'll open up the floor for questions inshallah. Danish was first. Uh, the hadith that we shared about the collective punishment of a people. Yeah. Um, is that, like, how do you reconcile with that when the Prophet said that, uh, that we would no longer be afflicted with, with you know, like, disaster and things like that? Like, what is that collective punishment? Speaking of exactly, is it like earthquakes or? It could be a wide variety of things. When, first of all, let's discuss the hadith of the Prophet when he said that this ummah will not be killed or devoured a whole or have such a punishment that the whole nation is destroyed. That's what the hadith is referring to. It's not referring to things like tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and stuff like that, where portions of the people will be you know, uh, afflicted by that. So that's one element to it. Number two is, even on a personal level, the trials that a community will face, <clears throat> whether it is like disunity in the community, whether it is you know, other types of trials, those trials will be, the community will be afflicted by because of that as well. So it doesn't even have to be a tangible trial, it could be like a spiritual or emotional trial as well. 
Wallahu ta'ala alam. Munib. Uh, question is, uh, are there any situations in which people can be advised public? For sure, for sure. So, <coughs> um, the rule in terms of advising people in public is when a people have seen a harm take place and they assume from it that this is something meant to be emulated, right? So for example, you have a sheikh, you know, he's smoking in public. So the people start to think, you know what, the sheikh's smoking in public? Smoking must be a good thing, let us start smoking as well. So this form of harm, you know, is meant to be rebuked in public because the people are taking him as an example at that time. So the general rule is that any time there is a greater, clear benefit in speaking about it publicly, that's when it should be done. But if that greater benefit cannot be presumed, then it goes back to the normal rule, which is where the advice is given in private. Second question. Yeah. Uh, so many times that the, as you mentioned as well, one of them, that uh, the people didn't differ except when the bayinat came and everything. What does that actually mean? But logically, it doesn't fit because when the clear proofs come, people should ideally. Know. Okay, so you know how that statement goes: yeah, ignorance is bliss. This is what that refer statement is referring to. That up until people get knowledge, they don't know what is right and wrong, right? But once the bayinat comes, people now know what is right and wrong. And you truly know what people are like at that time. Those people that follow the bayinat that are upon the haq, they have separated themselves from those people upon the batil. And those people who were ignorant, their ignorance became further exposed when they choose to reject the truth. And that is why when the bayinat come, the people who are on the truth are saved. People who went against the truth, they're the ones that split off and were destroyed thereafter. Allahu ta'ala alam. Any other questions? Go ahead. Come on, man. You have to say salam alaikum. Wa alaikum as salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. What causes fear of the people? I mean, there's so many things that can, can, it can instigate that. But to mention some of them, one is lack of Iman. Lack of, lack of Iman will magnify the fear of the people. Number two, the upbringing of a child. That has a huge effect on it. So for example, if the, the parents, all they do is instill fear into the child. Like, I'm going to beat you today, I'm going to do this to you, I'm going to do, do that to you. When this child grows up, he's going to be afraid of everyone, right? So that can increase, uh, you know, a, a fear of the people. Number three, a third thing that can increase the fear of the people. Another question? Fantastic. A third thing that can uh, increase the fear of the people. And I just lost my train of thought. Um, if it comes back to me, I'll share it with you. But I just completely forgot what the third thing was. So those are the two things I had, and I had a third one as well. But if it comes back to me, I'll share it with you. Second question. Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> that, that is the reality of the times that we live in. You know, the Prophet ﷺ, and this is not to, to make us feel hopeless, but this is to put things into perspective. He, he said that no time comes except that the time after it is worse than the time before it. Right? And this is with every generation from the time of the Sahaba. That you saw this, that the time of the Sahaba was amazing. The, sorry, the time of the Prophet ﷺ was the best. Then the time of the Sahaba was amazing. Then the time of the Tabi'een, you start seeing things break down and things get worse. 
And from that time on till our time today, every generation is going to be worse. That technologically, you know, we're one too advanced. Health-wise, we're living much longer. Wealth-wise, we have a lot more wealth than we've ever had. But even then, our situation is so much worse. And I believe a lot of that comes down to the level of taqwa. That is like the, always the distinguishing factor. That you have a generation that is, has taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even if they don't have technology, health or wealth, they'll be successful because they know what their true goals and ambitions are in life. But with each generation as you know, it fades away, then it's a time of trial. But the exact opposite of this side of this is that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he says that towards the end of time, there will be people who have the reward 50 times of the Sahaba. 50 times of the reward of what the Sahaba had. Why was that? Because they believed in the Messenger of Allah وسلم, even though he, he, they didn't see him. And they hold on to their deen even though these are such trying times. So yes, we live in very trying times. We are probably part of you know, one of the worst generations mankind has ever seen. But at the same time, the opportunity for reward, because we hold on to our faith, is so much greater as well. So that balance should be there. And the third thing that I was thinking of was um, the whispers of shaitan. The whispers of shaitan. So for example, you're at work and you're like, you know, there's this evil that's going on. Shaitan comes and whispers to you. He's like, look, don't be different from your coworkers. Stay, you know, the norm. Don't break the norm. Because if you do, you might get fired. Someone might say something like that. So shaitan, he inspires the fear of the people as well. That was the third thing I was thinking of. Wallahu ta'ala anam. Anything else? Okay, let me answer these questions and we'll call it a night. Assalamu alaikum. I know people who believe in horoscope. They believe there's scientific reasons behind it. They believe the placement of the planets has an effect on a person's personality when they are born. They believe, uh, they believe this. Is it shirk or just ignorance? This we will call jahal murakkab. We will call this ignorance and you don't even know how ignorant you are. To assume that the alignment of planets, the alignment of stars can change a person's destiny is absolute foolishness. In that sense that why are we worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when it is the planets that control our faith, our fate, right? So obviously this is a clear uh, aspect of shirk, without a shadow of a doubt. That the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he speaks about the soothsayer and he is the, the fortune teller. And he gives in two separate hadith that the one that goes to a fortune teller and doesn't believe what they have said, then his salah will not be valid for 40 days. So just the fact that they attempted this, his salah is invalid for 40 days. Now what if they go to a fortune teller and they actually believe this? Then the Messenger of Allah وسلم, has said that they have, dis they have disbelieved in what was sent down to Muhammad They have disbelieved in what was sent down to Muhammad So this is clearly an act of kufr and shirk and should be avoided. And people should take this very, very seriously. You know, a lot of the times there's a horoscope on a newspaper or a magazine. They're like, you know what, I'm just reading this in jest or in fun. And when it comes to our faith, you know, there's certain things that we don't hold in jest and we don't hold just in fun. At that time, just tear it up, keep it away, you know, just stay away from it altogether. This applies even to, to, to most fortune cookies as well, right? People are like, hey, you know, let's see what my fortune is for today. And not, you know, having the intention to do anything evil, but over here, it's, the intention is insignificant because of the greatness of the crime, because of the greatness of the crime. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik